Hello, welcome to the Hack Inc. podcast. This is Gareth Lyons just nipping in very quickly at the start because we have a monster episode with Brett Juvenvel, which is very, very good. Some uh, quick housekeeping. Number one, I uh, hope you're all doing well out there in lockdown. The COVID-19 is epidemic continues. It's very strange times. So, yeah, that's one thing. Two, sorry, it's been a while. Um, I kind of just, I don't know. I got very disheartened by... A lot of stuff that was happening in the animation industry or the response uh, to it as you can probably tell from previous episodes um i think i'm going to take a bit of a break from the podcast um i mean i've already taken a big break because there's been such a gap between the episodes but we had one or two in the can which leads me to number three which is uh brett jubenville recorded before <laughs> Before, and like sometime in November 2019, which is insane. It's been so long, but it was such a long conversation. I was like, oh, you're going to need to chop this down. And I went through it and I thought about chopping it down. But like, I mean, to be honest, leading back into the previous point, number two, I felt very disheartened and kind of like, what the fuck industry am I in? I hate everything. This is so stupid. I thought this meant something more. And then I was like, all right, I'll edit these episodes. I'll get it out there. And then uh, I started listening to Brett and my spirits were immediately picked up. Uh, Brett talked about, you know, I don't know. We just had a conversation that was very easygoing, lighthearted. We, t- we uh, geeked out ugh, about certain things. I hate the expression geeked out. Um, but um, and then he talked about his studio and the stuff that he made. And as you'll hear later in the episode, he mentions how, like, you know, Super Science Friends is essentially something that's like always on in the background and they don't necessarily make all that much money out of it but they enjoy making it so they make it and that was a real heartwarming thing to hear and especially encouraging at this moment in time so anyways I had this episode um and it was was a good conversation I didn't want to chop it down sound quality isn't great because of the way we recorded but you know whatever I think you can live with it but anyway just to say fucking I thought we're in the midst of an epidemic what else are you going to be doing Let's put out the podcast in its entirety and um, yeah, I, I hope you enjoy it very much. Thanks again to Brett for his time and for offering a bit of a pick-me-up for my spirit to this moment, both uh, creatively and in reality because, you know, it's it's tough going at the moment but, you know, even before that I wasn't having that much fun in the scene that I was in. So, um, yes, um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, um, I guess one thing to, to be aware of while I remember the thing that I was going to say beforehand is that there will be hack events streaming uh, we're going to be uh, I'm really eager to um, repurpose the films we had planned for shingles which obviously didn't go ahead to um, use in a, a completely separate um, event that is going to just, just be a normal hack uh, film club night and we just get to see good films by great people and if uh, there'll be a donation page to throw in a bunch of money if you want but like separated from all that other bullshit um much to the relief i imagine of some people who are getting in the fucking comments and the replies so um yeah i think that the podcast is going to be put on a hiatus but that hiatus is kind of i think interviews like this where i'm talking to uh brett and talking to people that kind of fill me with a bit of hope um 
those are great things and interesting and worth pursuing. So I think I'm going to try and keep going with with stuff like that. But I will um, probably... Um, it, basically, the release of this podcast is going to get a little bit more patchy. But, um, I mean, that was kind of par for the course already. I'm not going to be devoting the time that I once did to it. But Hack is still very much on the go so keep uh, abreast of all of our stuff on at we are hack inc on most social media shit we want to get um uh, trans filmmakers or films that deal with trans themes and we're going to hopefully stream them on our new twitch channel which is at we are hack inc on twitch so uh, mightn't be stuff up there for a while but keep an eye out on that um yeah that's it If there's anything else, I'll follow it up in a little teaser or some description. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for the patronage. Um, Oh, yeah. Thanks to our patrons. Fuck. Do you know what I need to do? I'm going to get rid of that Patreon page because people are not getting their money's worth with that. But uh, thanks to Tom Moore, uh, Adele Feely, um, Aiden Wall, my beloved mother, Anne Lyons, my beloved uncle, Michael Lyons, and then a person whose name is not very clear. Let me just look this up again. It says Cone Eel. So, Cone Eel, you know who you are, and we thank you very much for your uh, donation to the hack cause. All right. Um, thank you very much and please enjoy thank you very much and please enjoy this podcast with Bridge. please enjoy please enjoy no you will enjoy it it's very very good um he's an incredible animator incredible person um so yeah very thrilled to get him on the podcast and like i said an absolute tonic to go back and edit especially in these difficult times i sent an email on to brett just to make sure that there wasn't anything he wanted to add to the episode uh, the thing he sent back, season finale of Super Science Friends, episode 7, got released on Pi Day last month, that is March, I'm presuming. <laughs> yeah, because over there, Pi Day, we do the months differently. So it would be the 14th of the 3rd. Over there would be, you know, 3.14. So yeah, check that out. I'll put the link in the descriptions below. Um, and enjoy this podcast. I said enjoy again. Freemusic.com. Hello and welcome to the Hack Inc. podcast. Hey, how are you? What the hackers? What the hacknicks? What the hacks? But uh, this is Gareth Lyons. This is an Irish animation podcast. And I'm joined today by a Canadian. Are you Canadian? Yeah? Uh, mostly. Okay. <laughs> Brett Juvenvel. And uh, tell me I pronounced that right. <laughs> You pronounced it exactly correct. Okay, great. Um, Fred is the, um, would you say, yeah, you say safely, creator of Super Science Friends and um, one of the um, the creatives behind um, Tin Man Creative in Tin Man Creative Studio in what part of Canada is it in? <laughs> We're in the only part of Canada. We're in Toronto. Toronto. Okay. Yeah, I was good. I guess the first question, how did you get into cartoons and animation? Basically, very general question, but very formative, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it's, it's interesting because I, I, um, it's not a particularly fascinating answer, but I'll, I'll spew it out anyway. Uh, so I remember being in, all I remember is being in high school and I was in grade 13 or OAC, what they would call here. 
and uh, not really sure what I wanted to do. All I knew was that my dad, who was an auto worker, had retired the previous year. Mm. <clears throat> and at the time, he was teaching me how to drive. And so we would go on these long drives. And, and where I'm from, it's just flat country. Um, and we'd just be driving, 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 driving. And he would kind of tell me just things like very offhandedly. And some of them would be particularly profound, at least in my, you know, 17-year-old perspective. Mm. And one thing he, he mentioned was, uh, you know, after 32 years of working in this auto plant, he, he said, you know, I've kind of worked, I've, I've lived the same day over and over again for the last 32 years. I've, um, and that was it. And I remember thinking about that, like, especially at that angsty teen adolescent time in my life and just thinking, like, how, like, just fucking terrible that was and, yeah. and you know and now i can now you know a couple decades later i can look back on it and think like okay I, I see what he was saying he was saying like you know it's you're working the same job his tasks didn't change so he mm -hmm. really only worked the same day over and over and over and i get it uh, but at the time i was like i'm that's never going to be me I, I made a point right then and there i said that's not going to be me and so i stopped taking all the classes i didn't want to take like the maths and the sciences and i started okay. taking art classes and um and then coming out the other side of high school uh, my my art teacher we were talking about what i could do in, for college and i was going to go into illustration and she said mm, uh might not you might want to think animation instead it's a little right. bit more of, of an actual um I don't know, more of an actual career. Like, I think it's easier to have a quote unquote career, like a job, like a day to day with animation mm -hmm. than it is with illustration. Illustration, you need to be, it all hinges on you being exceptional in some way. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a, I think there's a fair bit of chance and no matter what you do, but I think there's a little bit more chance involved when you want to be an illustrator, especially today. Cause since then that would have been to 1999 and um, you know, in the 20 years since, the, the bottom's kind of fallen out on the illustration industry. Um, uh, a lot to do with the, the kind of news cycle, because illustrators would get a lot of their work from publications, mm -hmm. but all that stuff's gone at the crapper. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I picked, you know, road <laughs> B instead of road A, but yeah. uh, it, it was pretty practical choice. It was just, you know, it met my requirements of, of not doing the same thing every day. And um, it was something that was fairly close to home. It was about a 40-minute drive to college, so I was able to stay at home and save up some money. Mm. And where did you go to college? Was this in Toronto as well? or No, it was, it was, uh, I was, grew up closer to the border, to the U.S. border near Detroit, so in a town called Windsor. And so I went to the St. Clair College Tradigital Animation Program in Oh, Windsor. wow. Yeah. So that was like, what programs, and when, what year was this? 2000. And so the programs you'd be using would have been like, if it's have, digital. <laughs> yeah, it would have been Maya 4 uh, was the 3D software we were using. Really? The 2D software, I couldn't even tell you. I, I remember having a cut of Flash 4 in high school. And I ended up using Flash for my third year film, which I never finished. Mm. Uh, but there was some other program they had given us, and I can't remember the name of it, but it, it never went anywhere. Yeah. Because funny, it's funny... Um, just because of the trickle-down effect of, um, I don't know why I said that, but uh, with uh, programs where you have, you know, they'll be appear in America and then it'll be like years before they get here. Like only in the past, like I'd say four or five years have um, 
maybe like even three um, have animation studios in Ireland kind of started to get into Toon Boom and things like this. So Flash, I believe, was like mid to late 2000s, although it could be wrong. But yeah, we still use we use what's now become Adobe Animate, but Flash yeah. essentially at our studio. That's and what I was going to ask you, actually, yeah. Because I saw that you're making of and I recognized the layout and I was like, because so many people are saying like, oh, it's not a, it's not a program people use anymore. But I was really glad to see it being used on stuff because we do still use it here in Ireland quite a lot, um, only on fewer and fewer productions. But I still think it's one of the best ones if you want to start off on your own stuff, you know. So, no, no question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for, for me, it's like if I'm comparing Toon Boom to, to Flash, um, Flash, I could teach someone the basics in about 20 minutes and mm. get them up and, and going. Toon Boom, it's six weeks yeah. of, of doing tutorials and spending every day learning it. Um, Flash is $20 a month per seat. Yeah. Toon Boom is $200 a month per seat. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, you know, all those things. And, and from what I've heard, because I don't use it, but from what I've heard from people that are using Toon Boom now, it's, it's gotten kind of, it's kind of gone the way that Maya went in the 3D right. world, which is, you know, it becomes the standard and then it gets kind of bloated and chuggy and hard to use and they start keep putting so much stuff into it. And then there are other programs that just do those individual things better. So yeah. with Maya, for example, like they have fur, but if you really want to do fur properly, you use Houdini. Right. Um, okay. or, or if you really want to do, you know, water effects, you use this other program. You don't use the out of the box Maya. Mm. Um, and I think Toon Boom's kind of the same way. I was really excited about Toon Boom when it first showed up on the scene because mm. I looked at it and they had, you know, digital pegs and they were using like a dope sheet and they had all the kind of traditional paper stuff that I grew up learning. Mm. Um, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great for like actual traditional drawing, which is a lot of what we do here. Mm. And in the end, it, I think they they introduced like the morph tools and suddenly... That's all that gets used. And so the stuff yeah. coming out of Toon Boom, if it's not done correctly, there's some, I should preface, there's some beautiful yeah. stuff that gets done in Toon Boom. And if you have nice rigs, it's great. Mm. Um, but then there's stuff where they just like, I don't need to draw the arm bending. I can just put in the morph. Yeah, yeah. Morph the arm bending. And so it ends up looking more, quote unquote, flashy yeah. than flash animation. Does. <laughs> yeah. That's what I've kind of felt as well. There's a lot of things where people will be like, oh, we're using Toon Boom. And then you kind of look at it and I was like, I feel like you could have gotten the same result from Flash. But yeah. then the other thing as well is like I've heard from people like producers and stuff like, well, if you put down Flash on something now, then people will think that if you're asking for money off of a broadcaster or something like that or funding schemes, if you have Flash down, it's almost like, well, that's isn't that really old? Aren't they like websites mm -hmm. with Flash are not going to be a thing anymore? And it's like this is the kind of language that's. I mean, obviously yeah. now they call it animate. So if you look at it, you probably wouldn't know. But at the same time, it's like Toon Boom seems to strike people as being like, ah, I see. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. um, only for people in the know, I guess. And that's kind of debatable how many people that you're approaching for money have you know, knowledge of the softwares and stuff. You know. Well, the one thing yeah. I'll say for Toon Boom is, is that like as a company, I think they've been very smart in how they've, because they've expanded that and they've made it really the industry standard in such a short period of time. Mm. Um, and I think the way they did it was they they went to the schools, they got it set up there. I know they had they had done, they would set up like whole 
animation studios in like remote parts of the world, like the Caribbean. They yeah. would set up a, a Jamaican animation studio and it would just be Toon Boom and they'd be teaching Toon Boom. Um, and I, I know that they can be very hands-on, like they'll send people into your studio to train yeah. them up uh, and things like that. So for us, it's like, I just don't see a, a different, I don't see a, a, a benefit yeah. versus Adobe Animate. And uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's, that's yeah. it for me on that. I, I would like to use it like I I go back and forth because I do see some really incredible stuff done with it, especially the hand drawn. We worked with a Japanese studio recently um, or not recently, but last year, and they worked in Toon Boom and mm. and the stuff they could they could kick out of there was great. Yeah. But to me, if you're going to do that, you could do anything. You could use TV paint. You could use flash. You could use anything because you're mm. just treating it as a frame by frame timeline, which is yeah. more or less how we treat flash. And do you use TV Paint? No, I wish I, I wish I did. It's out of all of them, that's the one I look at and I go like, oh man, wouldn't that be great? Because mm. it, it's just uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's out of France and like some of the best animation in the world comes out of France. Oh yeah, yeah. And and so everything you see that's done with TV Paint, you're just like, that's amazing. Mm. But uh, to me, like Toon Boom really registers a, a change in the industry where it's scaled up. Like the amount of work, the amount of animation yeah. work getting done now is. 10 times what it was 20 years ago. And so you had to shift. There had to be a shift from the way it used to be to the way it is. And the way it used to be done is you as the artist learned how to draw the character like the designer drew the character. Mm. And then you animated it that way. Whereas now they take that out of the animator's hands. So if yeah. you need to add 300 people to a crew, you can't, you can't have it look like 300 different artists have touched it. So you take the whole design element out and you give them a rig and it becomes a lot more like CG or like stop yeah, motion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you left um, college, you said around 2000, is that what it is? correct? Or Yeah, was... and I appreciate you using the term left instead of graduated. Oh, right. Did I... <laughs> well, maybe that's uh, my own. Yeah, no, but what, you, did you graduate college or is this? No, uh, I didn't. No. I left. I think I had two credits left to to get. Um, I was very full of piss and vinegar at the time, and I got into a fight with my professors. And I, in a in a ill advised bout of protest, I decided to not attend his class anymore. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm two credits shy of of uh, graduating. You can always go back, you know. You can always go back. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably gone now. You know. If we, uh, you know, just. Yeah. Go in for another year, take time out, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so what did you do at that point then? Were you? Um, at that point, I did a lot of freelance stuff. So I stayed in Windsor and I did, I should point out, like when I was in school as an animation student, I was a terrible student. Uh, right. In his defense, I was a terrible student. <laughs> and I was a terribly lazy student. Um, yeah. So I didn't, and animation is, is not a proper job if you want, if you're lazy. So yeah. I focused on character design. That was my thing because I could draw one thing and clean it up and make it look pretty as opposed to having to learn the actual mechanics of animation and do it properly. So I was never a great animation student. So I focused on design. And then when I was in, out of school, I, uh, my first jobs were character design jobs for um, mostly development things. So I got a job pretty early on at Nelvana here in Toronto. Mm. Uh, but it was it was like... $200 and here's some characters to design and we'll see you next month. Okay. So 
it was not a not a lot to live on but luckily a buddy of mine was in Toronto and I was able to live in this kind of spare closet that he had in his apartment <laughs> Futurama you know <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah so when was kind of your first gig where you were kind of feeling like okay maybe this is coming together a bit or what was the part where it started leading you towards setting up Tin Man basically um if i remember correctly so around 2005 i was doing a lot of freelance work for nelvana and then i got a job offer from a place called core which no longer exists um they did that movie that disney movie the wild that came out just i do remember that yeah so they never really recovered from that. They delivered the wild late and yeah. uh, Madagascar got out first and it was essentially the same movie. <laughs> and uh, so I think that that was kind of the beginning and the end. But I had gotten a job offer from them. But in the contract, it said I couldn't work. I couldn't do freelance on the side. OK. So, you know, thinking myself a, a clever businessman, I, I went to my contact at Nelvana and I said, hey, I got this job offer there, but I'd much prefer to keep working with you guys. Can you offer me a gig? Mm. like a full-time gig and they said yeah okay sure and they hired me and they they matched the salary and they they brought me in and they said we'll we'll find something for you and the day after that happened one of the shows that they were running got shut down oh, uh, not because of anything they did it was the the person that owned the rights died and his son mm. took over and his son kind of put a hold on everything and so there were 60 people that suddenly were filling up any job that I could have taken. Yeah. Uh, and so about four weeks later, I got, I got uh, discharged from my position. Oh, God. Uh, but then six months after that, I got brought back in because they had a show that they were working on called The Future is Wild that I guess had gotten pretty far in production. And then mm. Discovery, which was the client, saw it. They hated it. And they <laughs> said, you've got six months to redo this. And mm. so um, the director at the time, uh, my first director, this guy, Mike Fallows, who's, who's I, I owe a lot to, uh, <clears throat> he saw the stack of portfolios and he liked my style. And so he brought me in and I was able to be the character designer for that show. That's great. Yeah. He taught me a lot about um, how, to, how to direct like it's your job to direct, not to be an auteur, if yeah. you know what I mean. Like, don't be Wes Anderson. Be the, right, be the yeah. guy who's like the, you know, directing 200 episodes of Star Trek a year or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's like a, the journeyman. Or is it, yeah, it's a journeyman and an auteur. Isn't that the thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where, that makes um, Yeah, where you're watching like, I don't know if you saw the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently. Yeah. Yeah, just the the director on that where it's like, you know, you just hear about these shows and these movies where people are just sitting on the lot and it's like, well, we got like a cowboy set. What do you want to do? Yeah, another Western, another Western, just churn them out, you know. Yeah. Um, but it also doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, a complete drone about it at the end of it all as well. So, yeah, that's yeah. great. So, yeah, you got the directing experience on that or was it just looking at this guy directing and kind of getting some pointers from him? It was looking at him, and, and it was really like him dealing with me. So I would do designs, and the way he explained it to me, and I've used this so many times since then, is, you know, if you if you if let's say this is the spectrum, you know, from from A to A to Z is the spectrum of what someone might hand in, mm. and 
what you don't want to do is you don't want to say K. Yeah. The, the letter K, that is what's acceptable. He says, you want to do like a, you know, I to N. He's like, if it falls within that range, mm. you know, maybe I should have used numbers instead. Yeah. <laughs> one, one to a hundred is what you might get. <laughs> then maybe use like, you know, 45 to 50 is acceptable. So if it stands, yeah. if it lands within there, then great. Approved, move on. Yeah. You don't want to be the one, you definitely don't want to be the guy saying like, I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. Like that's the yeah, worst. Yeah. And I'm sure you've been, you've had people give you that. And I've had people give me that Yeah. where they, they do this. I'll know it when I see it stuff. Yeah. Um, I worked, I briefly worked on a, on a commercial for the Transformers, the original Transformers movie. It was oh. a Mountain Dew commercial. And so I would hear stories cause they would have to deal with Michael Bay and I would hear stories about him and one of them. And I don't know if this is true. So if it's not, I, I apologize for spreading gossip, but is that he wouldn't look at a transformer? He wouldn't sign off on a transformer unless he saw it fully realized, fully textured, fully transforming. Oh, wow. and, yeah. You know, so they'd have to do these like you know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollar demos yeah. uh, of Optimus Prime, and he'd just look at it and go like, "Nah, not liking it." <laughs> yeah, when I see it. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it'd be much better to to kind of have a range, and I've mm. I've tried to hold to that as much as i can there's there's certain shows where i work on them like super science friends is one where that mm. range is a little narrower yeah um yeah but that was that was the number one uh number one lesson that i learned from him yeah that's um i directed a show for there was like a local broadcast me my friend pitched a show to them we got it made and it was put on a um a mercilessly was pretty much it was put on at uh, midnight after the handmaid's tale so uh did die to death unfortunately but it was like a kind of dublin version of the simpsons essentially but that's what it came down to in the end was like there was it was like i think we were looking at it in terms of simpsons episodes because i was like every, are you am i saying to myself that every single episode of the simpsons is like 100% perfect Do you know what i mean it was like kind of prioritizing the moments that i wanted to see the most just so i could keep going with the rest of it you know not to say that I was like, you know, phoning it in, but <laughs> there is like, there's like some element of it where you're just like, okay, I can't have everything, you know? Yeah. Well, you got to yeah. do the best you can with what you got and then yeah. in the time you have. There's a great interview with uh, Gendy Tartakovsky about that, where he's mm -hmm. talking about uh, Dexter's Lab and Samurai Jack. And he's like, he talks about the difference between a movie schedule and a TV schedule. Yeah. And with movies, you've got, you know, two years to work out the storyboard. Mm. And to pitch ideas and to have them not work and to take your time. And it's it's all very inexpensive at that point because it's just you and a couple of board artists and you're mm. working it out. He said, but, um, and then you've got another two years after that to do the actual animation. He said, but with TV, it's just you're like you're in it. You've got your, you know, six weeks to do the episode or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then if there's something you, you're not happy with at the end, it's like, that's fine. We'll We'll do it better next time. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of is an interesting thing as well because it makes it so organic and kind of, you know what I mean? Like I, I think about it, uh, Doctor Who, for example, you know, where it's like, you know, or a soap opera even because especially that's what Doctor Who is, like a space soap opera. But like, you know, where it's um, the length of something kind of makes it into an organic creature as well, where it's like, you know, you could have a film that's a finite thing, but then when something is constantly changing, it's, uh, you know, it's lore and uh, the character even in the center where he's like 
you know, an old man in the first episode and a kind of young man in the more recent ones or a woman or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It kind of um, is able to reflect the times and then it becomes like this kind of thing that's running alongside life as opposed to just trying to capture one moment of it, you know? There's an an energy too, like when you're working at that pace and you... You just try things and see if they yeah. work. And I and I I look at movies like the the new Star Wars trilogy, for example. Mm. And I don't know what your thoughts on it are are on it, uh, but mine Varied. are. <laughs> yeah, it's. But and and that shouldn't be like you've got you've got Disney, which has more has an infinite amount of money, mm. and you've got uh, you know talented people like Abrams and 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 such, and you think like yeah. this can't miss i found this i felt the same way about disenchanted on uh oh god yeah yeah where i go like how how did it go this way when you've got probably an infinite amount of money and and you've got the brains behind all these different things and it's how do you still get it wrong and i'm not saying that the new star wars movies are god awful uh but they are not as good as like i shouldn't be walking out of the theater going like i've got some notes yeah, they're very patchy. I think the first one is kind of like a an advertisement for what the next ones will be. And then the second one so tried to subvert all the stuff from the first one to the detriment yeah. of an entire trilogy. So it was it clearly wasn't planned from the start. Um, and it is also a, a new thing. Um, I think I was thinking, talking about this recently in terms of like it, it's happening with the new series of Watchmen as well. Where the thing is to do the exact opposite of what you would expect, and it just creates this confused kind of story for whatever reason, like a remix of the story. Yeah. There's a but, great um, video yeah. on YouTube about episode two of the of Star Wars or the new whatever episode eight of Star Wars. Yeah, and uh, they talk about how it's just like a they it uses this gotcha film. Yes, technique. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, you were talking. I was going to bring it up when you were talking about Gendy Tartakovsky, but. Have you seen The Mandalorian? I haven't seen... Is he directing it? No, he's not directing it, but I was like, I would be hired... If any animator who's kind of familiar with Gendy Tartakovsky's work watches that, I was like, be very hard-pressed to not draw some clear comparisons because it's like very slow, very deliberate, like, you know, very few lines of dialogue. And, you know, also uh, John Favreau had Gendy come in to do boards on Iron Man 2, which you probably wouldn't even be able to see in the final cut of it. Um, but there was one moment in Iron Man 2, and I was like, that has to be him, where it's like, they just show like a car park, and it's completely silent. And then it's like, Phoom! and then Iron Man just flies across the top of it. It's like a pause, and nothing's, like one car goes off the alarm, you know? And then all of a sudden, an army of like robots just flies directly behind that as well, you know? And then every car alarm just goes off in the place, you know? And I was like, that is a Gendy like sequence if ever I saw one. <laughs> and um it's no surprise then that you have like they're 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 really kind of going after like a kind of mm, there's a lot of fighting in it. Like I wouldn't call it necessarily martial arts, but it's very Western heavy. And it just reminds you of Jack, like this kind of character, like silent protagonist walking through like this you know, futuristic landscape of strange characters and just having to respond to them, do you know? Um, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, someone did, one of my crew did mention that uh, it was like Star Wars Samurai Jack. Mm. Like, I mean, and then the Clone Wars as well, obviously, when you look yeah. at that, you're kind of like, there's, oh, he's 100% like ape in that, which is like, there, there probably isn't any better person to ape if you're doing that type of thing. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
you do wonder. I mean, it's it's the whole Disney thing of like you know, you know, when you look at the 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 quote unquote live action remakes, and it's like you're literally just taking from these artists who you know won't receive any compensation for doing a lot of the heavy lifting to get it to the place where it was. You know, like yeah, yeah. But um. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like I, I always found with Star Wars, like the best stuff outside of you know Empire, which was probably the best of the of all of them. Yeah, uh, I always found the offshoot stuff was always better. The video games always had deeper yeah. stories and were kind of better. Like Rogue One, I thought you know for its flaws, I thought was was a far better film than the new oh, yeah. Star Wars uh, trilogies are. And and it sounds like the Mandalorian kind of continues that pattern of. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. These little things that don't have all the focus on them. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the other thing I like about The Mandalorian, and I'm speaking not as a major Star Wars fan, like the first film I would have seen would have been The Phantom Menace. And I was yeah. quite young. So I I was just I, I only went to see it because I heard a guy got chopped in half. And sure enough, he did. And um, and then somehow survived. I didn't know that that happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the thing about The Mandalorian that's great is um, it's just not Skywalker heavy, which is something that is great to see the broader kind of universe and how people are living outside of the kind of these, this family of people. You know? Um, well, I know, I know in the, the most recent Gal- uh, Battlestar Galactica remake, that yeah. show uh, came out, there were rumblings that, that, that Lucas was going to do a series okay. similar to that, where it was just like people aboard an Imperial cruiser and that would yeah. have been the show. I heard uh, that was, was a Star Wars Underworld as well. I heard was going to be there was one show that I heard at one point. I was going to be like set in like Mos Eisley or something like that. And is that okay. the one with the canteen? But yeah, then it would kind of be he was like, and it'll be great. It'll be like he said some obscene amount of money for each episode. And then he was like, <laughs> and it'll have loads of CGI characters. And I remember just going like, because this is back uh, in the mid 2000s. And I was yeah. like, there's no way that's happening. But now it's conceivable that that could happen, especially with the Disney Plus stuff. But like, you know. You do wonder, like, like people were. I heard this take in a podcast, which I really liked, which is like, at least, even this guy was defending the prequels because he said, you know, he likes the prequels, but he said that, you know, even if you don't like the prequels, you have to admit that they stuck to a consistent set of values in them, where it's <laughs> like people don't like Jar Jar, and it's like he's in every single movie. I don't care, you know, <laughs> like, or you know, any of these things that people found annoying. Whereas the Disney ones, if somebody goes on Instagram and says like, "Who is that one? Why I hate that character?" It's like, well, don't worry, we're getting rid of her. She's gone. And the next yeah. one, she's going to be like a mechanic somewhere. We don't care, you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he, he's, he stuck to his guns. That's for yeah, sure. very ambitious man. <laughs> I, I find like, and I worry about this with like uh, my show has been has been trudging along for long enough now where I, I start to look back at previous episodes and I go, you know, if I could if I could just go back and touch yeah. that up and and you know maybe I will and and you know maybe it, it all lives on YouTube so what's who's to say I can't just release a new version of the mm. of the and I think there's a danger in that where I think we saw it with Lucas where he went back to the well for the prequels yeah. Uh, I think we, you know, you see it in, in places. I, and I would argue you saw it in, in the new season five of Samurai Jack as well. Mm. As much as I love Gendy Tartakovsky, um, I, again, walked out of that season with notes. Yeah, uh, yeah. The biggest one, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it and if you want to mm. see it, you know, earmuffs. <laughs> uh, 
is that at the end, he the whole point of Jack going back in time was to save his parents. Mm. And in the end, they switched it to this romance thing. So, you know, Jack, the, the time between Jack actually liberating his parents mm. is, is two minutes of screen yeah. time. And, and the next thing you know, there's a wedding scene where he's getting married to this woman. And the parents are, are like, that's over. The whole point of the show was the parents. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe something happens where, where if you're the creator of something and you go and your life changes and you, your perspective yes, changes as a yeah. result, and you start to think, like with, with Lucas, it was obvious he had kids. Yeah. And you can see it in those prequels where it, it's all made for kids. That's why Jar Jar is there. That's why the pod racing was there. That's why oh God, yeah. at, at a certain point I had heard that he was naming characters after like, like there was going to be like an in sync cameo in one of the movies that got okay. cut. But I think they had shot it. It was like they were going to show up as like a, mm. uh, a, you know, a group of Jedi. Um, like there are just things where you're like, why would you do that? But you're, you're saying, why would you do that to George Lucas of 1975? Mm. Not George Lucas of 1999. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I walked it, when I when I finished watching Samurai Jack season five, I I had this feeling that while it was fine, it stole a little something from my mm. memory of the first four seasons. Yeah, I felt that way about uh, the second and third Matrix movies too. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, where and even even like Indiana, uh, a much reviled movie, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull where if you took Indiana Jones out of it and you just said, hey, here's a movie about, you know, Joe Blow and the Crystal Skull, it mm. would be a fine movie. Like, there's yeah. nothing empirically wrong with that movie. Um, but what it takes away from your imagination of, the, of this yeah. thing that you hold very dear is... And so for me, with The Matrix as an example, the, that feeling when you walked out of the theater seeing The Matrix for the first time, mm. you're just like, oh, you're questioning your own reality and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and then they follow it up with two very decent action movies, yeah, sci-fi action movies. But it does rob a little bit from that, that yeah. feeling. We were, I was thinking about this with, I mean, maybe not with Empire, but, well, apparently, because like a lot of people... Yeah, I'll get back to that. But what I'm saying is that we were trying to think of like a sequel which enhances the original without irreparably ruining the world that it comes from. And even yeah. in the best first films or the best sequels ever, they still do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, or even good examples. But um, I was thinking, I think we started thinking about it not, not because of a good sequel, but because of the, the Planet of the Apes sequels, you know, <laughs> like right. where the second one, it's like, I don't like knowing that there's an underground civilization of people that praise an atom bomb that's living on top of this kind of perfectly contained story, you know? Um, and the same with like Monsters University. That was something that I really didn't want because it was like, oh, it's not a sequel. It's a prequel and you can go back and have fun. It's like anything that I know outside of the Monsters Inc., I don't want to know. I just want to have that contained film, you know? Yeah, and not everything needs to be explained. Like, it's yeah. the midi-chlorian problem, to go back to yeah, Star exactly. Wars. It's like, I didn't know, I didn't need to know that the Force is a fucking bacteria. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so... Have you heard yeah. that Patton Oswalt routine? Did you? <laughs> was was it for, uh, it was on a show he was on? Where he no, it was, he was doing, it was a stand-up routine from Werewolves and Lollipops. Um, very good comedy album, highly recommend it. 
but he uh, that was one of the things where he's he's imagining a conversation between himself and George Lucas before the prequels are made, and he's like, "Well, hey, you say you're a Star Wars fan. Uh, do you like Darth Vader?" I fucking, I fucking love Darth Vader, dude. The the helmet and the cape with the sword. That's great, man. Is he in the first movie? Uh, yeah, in the first movie, you get to see him as a little kid. Uh, is he like a little Damien Omen kid, like evil and killing people with his mind and shit like that? No, he's just like this little kid and then he gets taken away from his mom and he's very sad. Uh, I don't really care about him as a little kid at all. At all. At all. I, don't, I just like the helmet and the sword and the cape. That was, was kind of cool about him. Well, hey, don't worry, because guess who shows up in the second movie? Boba Fett. There you fucking Boba Fett, yes! With the helmet and he's a bounty hunter. That is awesome, man. That is so cool. Yeah, and in the second movie, you get to see him as a little kid. <laughs> Again, I don't really care about him when he was a little kid. I like the chip and the helmet and the killing people. But, um... Well, yeah, yeah like if it. you, I think if you wanted to do a proper prequel to Star Wars, it's like don't go back thirty years. Yeah, go back like a thousand years. I want to yeah, see some yeah, like yeah. Sith and Jedi shit from the, from way back. Yeah, uh, yeah. I heard the new trilogy was about the 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 keepers of the Force, the one that he wrote that Bob Iger rejected, was going to be about these cosmic beings that were like the Watchers in the Marvel universe, except they were keepers of this Force. And it's like, he's very upset that it didn't happen. But I was like, I I don't know. You have to really pick your poison there. It's like, do you want the movies that Disney made? Or do you want like more absolute madness? Which is, you know, I guess I'd probably go madness than I would like cookie cutter kind of, you know, rehashing of the things that I like, you know. Yeah, I guess I'm on the fence about it. Because I remember when, when he had sold the rights and people were up in arms about, oh, no, now, now Disney's got it. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I remember just saying to, to a couple of friends, I was like, well, hold on now. You have to admit that, that the franchise is now in slightly better hands mm. than it would have been had you, had you left it with, uh, with Lucas. Yeah. And I think I'd still stay on, uh, on that, not because of the new movies, but because mm. of the, the Rogue Ones and even Solo. Like I, I saw Solo yeah. way after the fact. And everyone was so pissed off about that and how he got his name and all this other stuff. And I was yeah, like, I yeah. like that movie. That movie is a fun romp through Star yeah. Wars. I think the heist, the heist was good. I think yeah. there was like bits in it that you could definitely stand over. And like the casting, I thought, and you know what? This is a controversial one. But I've heard people give it out about Aldrin Elrich or whatever, who played the Harris, you know, solo, basically. And I thought he was quite good. I thought like he... He, you know, because if they had gotten somebody doing a Harrison Ford impression, it would have been insufferable. But yeah. because he was kind of doing his own understated thing, you know what I mean? It, it did give it, you know, debatable whether it was a good lead performance. But as a performance, I liked it all the same. Um, and the movie, yeah, I mean, no, I, I, I did actually come out of that movie going like, yeah, I had fun, you know. Yeah. But um, I would have much preferred to see the Lord Miller version of it now after the, the whole <laughs> thing was settled. But anyway, but anyway, we've gotten very, very far off top. This is wild tangents. <laughs> um, yeah, so how long did you work in uh, that studio then? Sorry, I've forgotten the name. Was it Novo that you were saying or Nenovo? Uh, Novana. 
Damn it. Sorry. No, so Novan is like a Novan is like the big started at all animation studio in Canada anyway. Okay. Um, so they've been around for since you know the sixties or seventies. Um, I was there for six months. It was a, it was a short contract because, like I said, the the client had given them six months to get mm. everything back in order. Um, and I think in the end, like it in the end, it only went one season. But I I think we did a a solid job of like, you know, basically the instruction was take what you've got now and improve it by fifty percent. And I think we, okay. we did that. So, um, and then after that, I I kind of I actually transitioned into advertising right. and I started working with some advertising firms in the States, just doing essentially like low end CG work for these, these advertisers. So I'd have to like, they'd run a contest that was design your own Pepsi label. And so I mm. would have to kind of texture these winners onto a CG Pepsi label and make it look convincing. And then they would put it on their websites and stuff. Mm. Um, I mean, I did that for until 2008 when the recession happened and then the U.S. kind of stopped farming at work. Mm. And so I took a studio job, uh, which at the time I felt was a grave injustice, um, <laughs> even though un unbeknownst to me, like since I, since uh, college, I had I had led such a sedentary life that I <laughs> continued to gain about 10 pounds a year while just working from home. And so I immediately dropped like 20 pounds just having to a place to go. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I immediately felt better and healthier. And, and so I worked on a, a series here in Toronto called Dirt Girl World, which was out mm. of, it was a kid's show from Australia. Yeah. And, I, and, and from there, that's when I really got my first taste of directing, like proper directing. Yeah. Uh, is I started as an animator and then I kind of rose to, uh, you know, assistant director sort of position. Um, and I was in charge of a team of 12 and, and that was, that was interesting. I, I didn't know anything about pipeline or anything else until mm. that point. And I, well, the producer and I, who's, who's, uh, coincidentally my, uh, my partner in Tin Man, Morgan, mm. she and I would just rework the pipeline of that show. Cause it was kind of flawed from the get go. Yeah. And, and we got a lot of experience, uh, out of that. And is that how you kind of came to know Morgan then? And then eventually kind of. Uh, was this how Tin Man kind of came about, basically? Right. Yeah, she she and I were were kind of in the trenches on that show, so we worked. Mm. There's a lot of I would say conservatively 18 hour days, okay. uh, just just trying to get it work, uh, trying to get it to work. It was it was a very complex show. If you go and look it up, it's like live action faces mapped onto CG heads mapped onto live bodies in an okay. After Effects background. Yeah, it has a very yeah, so unique look to it. I saw uh, a picture of it and I was kind of like, I'm not sure, like, I'm trying to figure out what, what, what's going on, you know, but, um, that sounds like a very complicated process. <laughs> yeah, it was. And we, and I think the, the studio that took it on had been, had been pitched on the idea that no, you're just comping it. You're just yeah, doing yeah. the final comp. And it wasn't the final comp. It was like, you're animating all the extra characters. Mm -hmm. You're placing everything. You're trying to take what is a broken CG engine, which is After Effects and trying to get that to work. And so it was so much, um, it was so much problem solving, but it was exactly what I needed at the time was just right. an excuse to like that, you know, uh, uh, what would be mentioned earlier was, uh, when I, when I came out of school, I wanted to be a director right away and I wanted right, to get yeah. shows. And this guy told me essentially go get yourself on a crew, learn how it's done. And so this was my finally, you know, 10 years later, this was mm -hmm. my moment 
to actually do that and to to learn how it how the hot dog gets made. Yeah, sure. Um, and so I I walked out of that with probably five shows worth of experience because that's how many times we redid the entire pipeline from tip to tail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so oh. I, I really appreciated that um, for as hard as it was and for as as long as it was. It was I wouldn't trade it. How many series were there? Was there? It was just one, but it was just one. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, preschool kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, we got the pipeline working around episode 38. Mm. So it was a long <laughs> time to be banging our heads against a wall, but once yeah. it clicked, it then just clicked. Mm. But uh, a really good, like I learned so much on that show, and I always, when I'm thinking back, I'm just like, so many hats that got worn. One of them was I had an editor um, who was a bit of, he was older than me, and he had kids, so he had to leave at a certain time of day. Mm. Because we were running so late, all our deliveries would be after six o'clock. Yeah. You're delivering stuff at midnight. And so he would be gone, and I'm sitting there with Final Cut in front of me, which I don't know how to use. Mm. And so I remember one day where I just said, like, okay, I guess I'm learning Final Cut. Yeah. And so I just hopped in and I started finding my way around. And, and so suddenly I'm an editor. Yeah, um, yeah. So there was another kind of tool in my tool belt, which, which later on uh, became very useful. Yeah. And do you still use Final Cut for like the stuff that you do? A lot of people use Premiere over here, I believe, or Avid even, you know. Yeah, we use we use Premiere. Once once uh, the ill-fated Final Cut X came out, I <laughs> I quickly abandoned the the software. Um so according to your IMDB, the next thing you're on is Ugly Americans, which is was that an ad well, it says here anyway, but there's yeah. a big gap in some of these little sections because it's such I was kind of like going through a bunch of websites to try and piece together some sort of chronology to ask things, but <laughs> I was finding it incredibly difficult because there was a lot of variety of roles, but also a variety of animation as well. There's like, and you kind of been mentioning as well that you've, I mean, stands to reason with trad digital, you know, <laughs> that you'd be doing a lot of like CG or kind of digital based stuff. So, well, yeah. you know, but there's a hand drawn kind of thing at the core of it as well, which you can kind of plainly see and, most of the stuff that you've done so far, you know? Yeah, so I, I remember, so what happened with that was that Morgan got a job at a studio called Cup of Coffee in Toronto, mm. which isn't around anymore. And uh, so she was the producer on seven episodes of Ugly Americans, mm. which was a show for comedy. So it would have come on right after South Park. Right. And the main studio for that was Augenblick out of New York, Augenblick Studios. And so we were kind of an overflow studio. Yeah, um, but it was all frame by frame, hand drawn in Flash. And in Flash, really? In okay. Because uh, that's what Augenblick I think still uses uh, Flash MX, which is a 2003 <laughs> okay. software. But yeah. in their defense, that is the best version that ever yeah, was yeah. and ever will be. The line yeah. weight is so smooth, and you can just—it's the best for drawing. Yeah. Um, so we. I came on, I wanted to be a designer on the show, so I applied for that. Uh, I got rejected, and then Morgan brought me on as an editor because I had mm. learned how to edit on Dirt Girl World. Yeah. And they, they didn't have an edit, so in the prior se seven episodes that they had done, um, whenever there was a delivery day, they would kind of be rendering out shots on the fly that day and seeing how it all looks together for the first time, which was you know kind of causing a bit of a mess. So the first thing I did when I went in there was I just said, okay, we got to set up an edit. We have to be able to look at the episode at any time and see what shape it's in. 
And so I was mostly an editor and then later became technical director on that show. Mm. Um, yeah, so I worked there for, I don't know, eight months, something like that, however long it took us to do those ones. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Morgan and I did a couple of commercials after that. We, we kind of got this reputation of being fixers. So we mm. were brought on to these projects that were a little bit troubled. Um, so Dirt Girl World is where we first kind of fixed a production pipeline and then ugly yeah. americans we kind of fixed that as much as we could anyway mm. um and then uh we got brought on to commercials to fix them and eventually we were just tired of it and we said you know what uh rather than coming on to these things that are already sinking let's let's just start our own yeah shop. for sure that's yeah. amazing so like how that was kind of the draw drive behind it but where do you even start then with the setting up a studio and getting clients and things like this like yeah. Is there any real answer or is it just kind of using the connections that you have already and trying to, you know? Well, most studios, the way, the way it works is someone will land a gig. So mm. um, I think there, there are, and there are studios in Toronto where I think the reason they exist is because somebody was a director on something or a producer on something and, the, and Disney or whomever said to them like, hey, how would you like to produce a, this show? Or they pitch a show and they get a green light or something. There's a, mm. there's a kickoff project. And then from that, they have the, the money to borrow against and then to set up their, their digs and then hire their crew. We mm. never had that. So we started, we started in 2011. The, the economy had not recovered yet. Mm. Um, we didn't have any clients. We didn't have any prospects. And I remember right before we, we officially launched, I got offered a production designer gig on a feature film, and she got offered a full-time job at CBC, which is our, like, yeah. BBC Canadian, equivalent. Yeah. yeah. Canadian uh, Broadcasting Company, isn't it? Or? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were, it was kind of like this last temptation before, <laughs> like, maybe you can do it, you can go straight with this. And I said, yeah, no. yeah. So uh, what we did was she took a short term contract at CBC. Mm. And in that six months, what I did was I made our first demo reel. So I would do these little five second clips. In, mm. in wildly different styles. Um, and some of it was just stuff I wanted to try out that I thought might work. And some of it was just, I always like an eclectic look. So I just yeah, tried sure. a bunch of different things. And as a result, we ended up with this demo reel that looked like we had worked on a shit ton of stuff. Because mm. um, no, one, no one knew that the five seconds for you know that particular animation was the only thing that existed from that animation. It just looked yeah, like a yeah. part of a bigger thing. Um, and we also really struggled with the name, the name of the studio. So yeah. in the end, Tin Man, our, our, our main priority was to find something that sounded like you'd already heard of it. Yeah. And Tin Man kind of fit the bill where we're to the point where we would get people, you know, six months in going like, oh, Tin Man. Yeah, I've heard of you guys. And we would be <laughs> like, no, you really haven't. Yeah. You think you have, but you haven't. Um, so that helped and, and, and for a long time, like we thought we would go in and we'd kick off doing series cause that's what we'd been working yeah. on. Uh, and that didn't happen. So we, we ended up working for a long time, these little, little $5,000 commercial gigs where she mm. would produce it. I would animate it and we would have a little leftover for rent. And, um, and yeah, so she, I remember at one point I had to teach her how to edit and to sound design because uh it wasn't cost effective to have her do nothing that showed yeah, up on sure. the screen like she couldn't just be the the face of the company and the client mm -hmm, manager mm -hmm. 
Um, so she taught her, she taught herself how to sign sound, sound design because I couldn't do it, but I, I taught her how to edit. So for a long time, she would do all our editing and sound designing in addition to her normal stuff. And then I'd do all the drawing. And I finally had to learn how to animate, which I did not do in school. <laughs> and I certainly didn't do on the other, like Dirt Girl was an After Effects project, more mm -hmm. or less. The Americans I never drew on, despite, you know, my style uh, more recently looking a lot like it. Mm. So uh, finally I was thrown into the deep end and it was sink or swim. And I had to animate this whole 30 second spot by myself. And I, looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, it's decent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so how, when did you, do, where did like Super Science Friends come into it then? And how did you kind of come to develop that or pursue it on Kickstarter, basically? Was this kind of when the studio had its kind of feet or was it like a kind of, you know what, now we've gotten used to making commercials, let's add something else to the mix? Yeah, we had, I think we had a few crew at the time. We probably had three or four crew. So we, mm. had, we had enough commercial work coming in where we could hire people more or less full time. Okay. Um, and I had come up with the idea over a weekend, uh, over a, a night actually, mm. where I had, had been playing uh, a game that I really like called Fallout New Vegas. Mm. And there was something about one of the characters in it that just kind of tweaked something. And I was sketching at the same time and I drew a similar character. So the Soviet space school from episode one Yeah, looks, you know, strikingly similar to one of the one of the bad guys from the the Fallout New Vegas uh, yeah. um, DLC, Old World Blues, and and I just I kept I kept thinking about that character, and I mm. just like I need to I need I need a world for this character to exist in, and so that night I kind of stayed up all night and I came up with the premise of Super Science Friends, and that commercial that I had had to animate a month mm. earlier was all about Isaac Newton and uh, Albert Einstein and. Uh, I can't remember who the other one was. Yeah. Da Vinci, I think, was the third character I had to animate. So I had that kind of fresh in my mind. And so I kind of merged the two. Yeah. And uh, and then we sat on it for a while, because I think that was in like 2012. And then Kickstarter wasn't really a thing yet. And then mm. it came up. And we thought, hey, why don't we try it out? Like, what's the worst that could happen? And mm. uh, and we looked at all the projects that were in our dev folder. And we said, well, let's do Super Science Friends has a hard no as far as like getting greenlit. Right. Yeah. Uh, we pitched it to a couple of people, and it's you know, there's, or I shouldn't say a hard no, but there's an easy no, and, and yeah. people that you pitch to, as I'm sure you're familiar, love to say no. Oh yeah. Um, and they they look for a reason to say no, and if they can't find a reason, that's when something gets greenlit. So for yeah. Super Science Friends, you just go Nazis, nope. Yeah. Or there's no kids here, or there's you know. Yeah. Whatever. Um, it's too niche. That's that's Freud, one. Freud, you know. <laughs> yeah, Freud. We can't have that. We can't have drug use on screen. Yeah. Um, so we pitched it around. It didn't really go anywhere. But then we sat on it. And then Kickstarter happened, and we gave it a shot. And we we eked past the the goal, um, mm. which was which was great. And that gave us the kind of impetus to to do the thing. And how did you uh, find Kickstarter as a platform for raising money? And kind of the is there like. I guess this is something that I've always been interested in just because I'm, yeah, the exact same thing that you're saying. A lot of the stuff that you'd be submitting to Irish broadcasters, there isn't really a kind of demand for adult animation, despite the fact that I did make an adult animated series by an absolute fluke. But, but and again, like we, it was made when then 
the guy who commissioned it then moved to the BBC and then the guy who was, you know, followed him up really did not like it. So there was no publicity. There was no anything. So the idea is like, you know, I'm really interested in um, generating funds for, you know, my own projects. And this isn't in a greedy way. This is because as in like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do with my money. I'm perfectly happy. But as long as kind of it's not like, you know, you, to get even in the door it's like is it preschool no okay forget it you know yeah and um yeah i don't know i think it'd be we have the same to problem in canada yeah. by the way is, is like yeah. it's it's we're we're uh more or less a service country so we yes, exactly. you know it's it's yeah. other countries like pretty much the u.s does comes up with the idea and we execute it so like rick and morty for example is, exactly. is animated in vancouver Mm. Um, for the most part, there is a studio in LA, but the actual bulk of the animation is done, um, in, in Canada. Mm. And I know Ireland's the same way, like outside of yeah. cartoon saloon, um, yeah. it's, it's a lot of service work. Yeah, completely. And it's a lot of preschool service work. So yeah. we haven't, we haven't really had any decent adult animations come out of Canada. Yeah. Except for super um, science friends, except, I mean, it's not really adult. That's kind of like an all ages thing, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I always say it's for adults and, like, really cool kids. There you go. That's a better description, yeah. Um, uh, but as far as Kickstarter goes, it's, I, I mean, off the first one, we raised $30,000, mm. and none of that went towards the actual production of the show. Okay. Like, all of that went to shipping and creating the rewards. Yeah. Uh, part of it was we had no idea how much shipping costs, which is yeah. a bloody fortune. And the other is that we just overpromised on on the rewards, um, and then we did a follow up Kickstarter for like the next episode, like oh let's do it again, and uh, that one didn't go anywhere. Um, mm. So go through, and we start. I started to kind of get a picture in my head of what Kickstarter is and what it isn't, and I think what it is is for something that's new and rapidly popular. Yeah. Or it's for games or comics, mm. uh, and and I don't mean video games. I mean like board games or like oh, yeah. card games and stuff like that. It seems to be its niche that it's found. Um, mm. Things that are that are like a comic is a great thing because you can make a comic for five thousand dollars and you can raise five thousand dollars relatively quickly. Mm. But a show like Super Science Friends or like something that you had made where it's meant to be Simpsons esque. Mm. Uh, and I would argue Super Science Friends is in the same category where it's more or less a sitcom that's yeah. animated. Um, those can be, you know, like you need $100,000 just to cover your hard costs if you're going to make a 20-minute episode. Mm. And that's a hard ask. Like it's, it's really hard to ask people for that. So if, you're, if, you're, if you need to raise 100000 you need to raise 200000 to cover the costs of the, the rewards as well. Mm. And and that's a lot of money for for um, for somebody who just thinks like ah this is neat here's five bucks yeah exactly yeah um and but did you find that you generated a lot of publicity around the first Kickstarter to be able to I guess pursue money in other avenues or take it to other people and say like well look at the interest that's here from the Kickstarter yeah um, so I mean we did definitely the first one in particular there was a lot of I think that was still a time when when of like press would look at kickstarters now nowadays i don't know if it's if it's if they care as much like they used i remember for a time it was just like this kickstarter is happening in this yeah, yeah. 
and it was all very you know of top of mind um so there was a lot of press and i remember doing interviews and like proper like uh like huffington post interviews and stuff like that mm. um and then when we did the second one there wasn't anything really and then we did another kickstarter for the for a game that we were trying to do and that didn't go anywhere mm. uh so for me i don't see it i don't see it as a as a great money generator yeah. Unless unless you're in one of those categories like comics or or one of these mm -hmm. like low cost to produce um, uh, the actual product, then I think you can make it work the the finances of it. But animation is just so labor intensive that um, that it's, mm -hmm. it's it's a high cost and it's a low reward when you think about it. You know, you're you're raising let's say two hundred grand for twenty minutes of entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I don't know. That, that's a tough one. But you've uh, have you found the experience making it rewarding anyway? Because it is clearly a passion project. You've got like six or seven episodes up now. So well, yeah, six episodes and seven on the way, isn't that it? Episode seven's on the way. We also yeah. did. We started doing all these mini episodes, uh, mm. which I I found really really like that was more like a, a YouTube hack. Yeah, we were putting it on YouTube and, and we're like, well, for YouTube, you kind of need to upload more frequently. And so I said, well, let's, OK, let's write some shorts, like some little three minute shorts. Mm. And those I really enjoyed because in a, in a given like with such a large ensemble cast, because we've got like seven main characters mm. um, in a 20 minute episode, some of them might only get two or three lines of dialogue. So you don't get a whole lot of opportunity to to get to know them. Mm. And so when we did these shorts, which I kind of thought were just going to be more or less throwaway, um, it gave us an opportunity to focus on one character. Like you mentioned Doctor Who. We just finished uh, earlier this year a, a four-part miniseries on Tesla okay. called The Snake Pit. And the last episode is a complete Doctor Who you know, yeah. love letter. Um, and I don't even watch Doctor Who, but mm. Caitlin, who directed that, uh, one of my crew who, who I said I gave that, that one to her, uh, she loves Doctor Who and she knows all about it. And so yeah. that was like her, that's her vision in, in that one. And that was good for me to see too. It's just how someone else would interpret the, yeah. the world. And the, the anime one was, because I looked up just recently, you know, just to watch some of the stuff before. But uh, the anime one really took me by surprise. Or <laughs> was the kind of like, you know, inspiration for that, I guess, or, you know. Uh, there are a couple of things. So Laurel Dalgleish, who does, who's done the boards for all the main episodes, mm. she she's a huge anime nerd, and um, so we had talked for a long time about doing an anime episode. But we're both animation snobs to a certain degree. So yeah. one thing that that I notice is that Westerners will always try and do anime, but they'll always fuck it up in some way. Mm. And I think it's because they don't have. They try and do like anime designs but they still animate it like westerners would right yeah yeah um and so we we kind of said okay if we're going to do this then we have to do it properly it needs to be done you know uh it needs to look legit mm. and so she directed that one because i i do not know enough about anime to mm. i'm like i've seen cowboy bebop and dragon yeah. z uh but she she'll watch like the obscure stuff that you've never even heard of mm. um so that one we we found uh, there were a few there were so many like revelations that happened when we worked on that. One of them was that Japanese animators are do not exist in 
North America. At least right. I can't find them. And I would think, like, I don't know if you've seen, but if you've, if you've gone onto Facebook or something, you've probably seen, like, these pencil tests from Akira. Mm. Yeah, it shows yeah. you, like, the pencil work. And I, I look at those and I think, like, God, man, if I had one of those shots on my demo reel, <laughs> I would be hailed as an animation god among mm. my, my peers. <laughs> And that was probably done by some guy who's just continued to work on... He's probably working on Attack on Titan right now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I'm like, there's got to be one of these guys that's like a shit-hot anime animator from Japan and says, like, so long, Japan. I'm going to the U.S. to make some bank. Yeah. And so I tried to look for, like, the, the elusive freelance anime artist, and they do not exist. Mm. Uh, I couldn't find anyone, but I did find a Westerner from New York named Henry uh, Thurlow, who had left New York, gone to Japan, learned the language, kind of spent years washing dishes and stuff, and then eventually yeah. got a job at an anime studio. And now he runs his own anime studio where he's a director at one. Hmm. And so I got in touch with him and he, uh, his studio helped us out. So we sent our anime designs to them, which we thought were the best. We were like, we got this. We know how to draw spiky hair and big eyes. Yeah, yeah. Sent that off, and they fixed our designs uh, mm. very graciously. And then they also yep. um, animated about three minutes of that episode. I think we animated thirteen. They animated three. Mm. And uh, and they kind of we went back and forth a lot trying to get our stuff looking like their stuff and vice versa. So I, I think that helped was having their influence on us that whole time. Yeah. And just in setting that bar, too, because, man, when we got the first shots in, when we got the first design, <laughs> yeah. we were just like, whoa, we need yeah. to we need to step up. Um, and, and then uh, I'm glad you were surprised by it because we normally we would do trailers and stuff leading up to. But because yeah. we wanted it to be a, a bit of a shock, we, we said, no, we're just going to drop this cold. We're not going to yeah. do any promotion. And so I think it was around last Christmas where we finally wrapped it up and we put it out there and and the it was it was great watching the comments come in yeah. of just like what the fuck? yeah <laughs> and where did you get like the, the well the money and the time to do like a 17 minute cartoon basically was it or was it yeah the, the money is mostly like we we do uh at our studio we do commercials we do mm. we have another side of our studio called skyship entertainment where we do a lot of kid stuff mm. And so the majority of revenue would come from that. Mm. And so we always treat Super Science Friends as this kind of thing that we do in our spare time. That's great. Not our spare yeah. time, but I, I try and keep like a couple of animators working on it at any given time just to keep it the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah. That's um, great. And what I found is, is that from a, from a like, uh, managing artist's perspective, um, you can burn out if you're on the same thing. Mm all the time so no matter what it is so like there are people that work on super science friends a lot and they burn out on super science friends and then there's people that work on some of the preschool stuff we're working on and they'll burn out on preschool stuff mm. and so having this completely opposite thing yeah. to put them on being like okay you've burned out on on the wheels on the bus okay we're gonna put <laughs> you on blowing up nazis yeah yeah uh and i find like that just keeps keeps things uh keeps things fresh i think because um, yeah. i don't like working on the same thing over and over again I, I i would assume most people don't yeah well, that's amazing yeah um and there's a patreon for super science friends as well i believe um and i guess i'm just 
all in on uh, crowdsourcing money. So I'm asking, like, what is, is the Patreon, you know, is that like, I suppose now you're talking about having another kind of studio and stuff. I wouldn't say the Patreon would be much of an income for anything that's kind of just like a little additional thing, is it? Like a little bouncer? Yeah, I mean, it's similar to Kickstarter, where it's mm. not it's not like funding a whole episode, but mm. I think what we've tried to do is be generous with the, the rewards where we can and and give them, you know, first looks at things and stuff like that. Yeah. And to me, it's just a little extra community that we can, that we have. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I, I really appreciate those guys because they, like, we go through what I would say are pretty lengthy droughts. Um, yeah. So, like, I haven't posted anything on YouTube in, in about four months. Uh, I'm going to post the trailer for episode seven pretty soon. They oh, great. Know, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I did, I, it's, it's something that's, that's nice, but it's not, uh, yeah, it's not funding. Like, yeah, it might pay for a few days of one artist per, per month. Mm. But if, if you want an example of an adult comedy, adult animated comedy that I think is done very economically well, Mm. I would highly recommend checking out a YouTube channel called Lord Bung. Okay. Just type And in. particularly his show Confinement. Yeah. Lord Bung and Confinement. I'll put that in the thing below. The yeah. link to it. Yeah. He, he so he the way that went is um he was a fan of Super Science Friends. Mm. Really liked the look of it. Uh, and then when he set out to do his own show, Confinement, he he borrowed a lot from our design yeah. uh, for his. Um, and But he animated it in such a smart way where he was essentially able to animate the first five episodes himself. Mm. And the the he he took it for what it is. So like Confinement is really a show about with uh, about a lot of smart dialogue mm. with a little bit of exciting action. And uh, he just does that really, really well. And he does it to the point where, you know, some animation where it's a little like South Park's a great example where the animation is so limited that it makes the comedy better. Yeah, yeah. Like if yeah. If, if South Park was animated fluidly like a Disney movie, it wouldn't be funny yeah. at all. Yeah. And I find that to a to a lesser degree, that's the same with confinement where he's found a very nice comedic hybrid of of the Super Science Friends style. Mm. And 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 it helps with the comedy whereas for us we were all animators and like i mentioned animation snobs so mm. we really wanted to show off our chops with that first episode and and that's continued on and so i think if i were if i had a time machine i wanted to go back if i had a if i had a science mobile that i could go back yeah to, um that might have been one of the changes i would make is like go cheaper because i think cheap and funny go well together mm. whereas uh you know high budget and funny don't uh, yeah necessarily and 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 you know your your homeland is a great example it's like the best sitcoms out of great britain are mm. are cheap cheerful you know one guy with a camera and then some you know some people with some very witty dialogue yeah definitely um i yeah no i was thinking about that with um because there is in ireland there's a kind of different thing to the we were a different thing to the BBC. We were like RTE kind of comedies and they were not to be ragging on them too much, but there is a kind of thing where 
um, a lot of the people have seemed to have worked in like advertisements or on dramas or stuff like this and kind of um, whenever I see like a comedy here it's oh they always have like the camera kind of planted like an interrogation room if there's two characters talking do you know yeah. it'll be like you know um, those Scandinavian dramas where it's like you just see one character and the background's out of focus and then they're doing like comedy whereas you'll see on like BBC Channel 4 type stuff that there'll be like you know just there, I don't think there there'll be a shot without two people in it. Do you know what I mean? Which is and then it'll there is a kind of um, yeah an energy to comedy that kind of um, as exactly as you said requires it being a little bit more you know slapped together yeah. and kind of mistakes should be kept in and you shouldn't have like these clean line readings. It can be you know I think that was another thing that I realized as well was like go you know how many times I would go back to comedies and then realize there was something that I'd missed. And it might've been the way that somebody pronounced something as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like you, you hadn't kind of copped one of the good comedies, I think for just dialogue, like back and forth. Um, I'm a big fan of Bob's burgers for that, you know, yeah, where he just definitely. has these conversations. Like the one that surfaced this week was the Thanksgiving day clip where he's like having that moment where he's having confusing feelings about the guy behind the counter, giving him the Turkey. And they're like, uh, you know, the stammers. I mean, that's just something that, um, and also another one of us, um, it's not a comedy, but, uh, in fantastic Mr. Fox, they were like, <clears throat> excuse me. They were, um, you know, they have George Clooney and he's in his like white t-shirt rolling around on the grass, just recording dialogue to make it sound like out of breath or whatever. Yeah, because they did yeah. those scenes like in in situation, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So which brilliant. is yeah, because usually you see like you know, oh Adam Sandler in the sound booth, you know, doing the same line delivery again and again. <laughs> but like, not to do, not to you know, that's a way of doing it as well. I'm just saying it's interesting when people kind of push the parts of you know uh, comedy in this and try and figure out like you know, I don't know, different ways of doing stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think about with animation, you know. There's another great animated series, the two of them, that if you haven't seen them, I highly recommend. One of them is called Dr. Cats. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And and then the follow-up was um, was Home Movies. And mm -hmm. and John Benjamin, who plays uh, Bob oh, from yeah. Bob's Burgers, and, he's and in Archer. both of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so great. Dr. Cats is brilliant because it's it's they would bring in comedians. So Dr. Cats is a psychiatrist. Mm. And the comedians would be in there essentially just doing their bit. Because mm -hmm. a comedian's bit is all about like, well, I was on the bus the other day and this woman looked at me and I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah, you yeah. It, it's all very kind of like stuff you would tell your psychiatrist. Um, so the writing is just really, really good. But the animation's super, super terrible. Yeah, but that yeah. makes it better, though. That makes it so much funnier. Yeah, completely. Um, I just have, I just realized we're gone way, way on. <laughs> but... I think you can cut about 14 minutes out of uh, the Star Wars talk. Yeah, exactly. I was like, God damn it, Star Wars taking so much of my time. <laughs> um, there's just two things I wanted to ask. One is um, about Cartoon Hangover, exactly, because I was kind of just reading up on that, essentially. I wonder if you could, uh, <laughs> sounds like a dumb thing, but elaborate a bit on what Cartoon Hangover is. <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah, um, Cartoon Hangover is if you if you know the if you're familiar with um, a network called Frederator, mm -hmm. Cartoon Hangover is their more adult animated um, network, YouTube network originally. So shows like Bravest Warriors, 
uh, right. would be on there, which was Penn Ward's. Actually, it's not Penn Ward's show, but he he kind of is a co-creator on it. Yeah. And it was all created by this guy, Fred Seibert, uh, hence Frederator. Yeah. And Fred Seibert used to run Hanna-Barbera. He used to run MTV. Um, he's, he's kind of, I think he was responsible for a lot of the original car, uh, Nickelodeon shorts. Mm. Um, and he obviously, like Frederator, most recently produced Castlevania for really Netflix. didn't know that they okay. produced fairly odd parents they produced adventure time like they've they're these weird it's like you'll see this logo at the end of credits and you'll go like oh yeah um mm. so fred <clears throat> and and the guys at frederator they liked super science friends and they so they they license it from us from time to time to put on their networks um, and I think they're kind of like everyone else. They're trying to figure out this, you know, new post TV uh, age. Mm. So they had the most recent thing that I've been involved with anyway is is what's called a Verve channel, which I think is somehow affiliated with Crunchyroll, which is like the okay. anime, the anime thing. Right. Um, so I think it's like imagine Crunchyroll, but we're going to do like Crunchyroll for adult animation. Mm. Um and so that's the Cartoon Hangover Verve channel, and that's where Super Science Reds is in the States, uh, mm. in addition to YouTube. So, um, yeah, they've been good. They were kind of a perfect little partner for us. Um, and, and he's been encouraging me to, to kind of uh, write a script that I can then pitch to places like Netflix and stuff like that. Like right, yeah, yeah. Trans version. And so I've been tinkering with, uh, with what would episode one look like now if I rewrote it. Like mm. the 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 much uh, maligned Netflix reboot version of of the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been I've been tinkering on that, and one of the things that I would do is I would probably have the Nazis be the first bad guy rather mm. than the Soviets. Just I think I got squeamish about having Nazis as the as the first thing that you see. Mm. Um, and uh, so I would probably do that if I if I had to redo anything. I don't know, I'm a big fan of the the whole kind of. Uh... Um, oh God, sorry. The Soviet aesthetic, basically, and yeah. uh, you know the, and also the the red and the hammer and sickle kind of cosmonaut suits is very, you know, it's very eye catching. So they're my favorite. They're my. That's that's another reason why I did them first is because I'm so in love with that design, mm. uh, which I know is self serving to say, but it's like I, there's just something about those the, those characters that um, that I really like. So I wanted to make sure I'm like, no, we have to animate those guys first. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was answered the second question I was going to ask, which is, have you been approached to make a super science and super science friends into a more full TV show, basically? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's he's encouraging me to 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 do it. And I think it's it's good for me, like even as an exercise in my own writing, because mm. uh, that first episode was is the first episode has um, three guaranteed laughs. I've seen mm. it in theaters at various festivals a number of times it has three guaranteed laughs and it has a killer ending. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, the writing is not, uh, if I can, if I can kind of criticize myself, the writing is not, uh, very good. Mm. And so the series does get better as it goes, especially in the writing department. Mm. And I think that's just the process of me learning how to write a show. Cause I really did not know what I was doing at the, at, when the first one came out. Mm. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to, to have that, uh, to have those three laughs and to have that ending. The ending came well after we were wrapped animation too. We had a whole yeah. other different ending and uh, which was all fully animated for the most part. And so 
when I came up with the the Apple ending, I was like, oh crap! It was it was no crap yeah. because I was like, oh, this is so much better. And but am I gonna really throw out you know four minutes of animation and yeah. replace this thirty second ending? And I'm glad we did because I, I think it it makes it. Um, but yeah, so I haven't been approached like I haven't had Netflix call on me and say, mm -hmm. "Hey, pitch this." But I have been approached by other people. Like um, College Humor kind of gets in touch with me right. every once in a while, and then they we talk budget, and then they kind of go away for a while, and then they'll, a year later they'll be like, "Where did we leave off on that?" <laughs> and you know, so there's various other. I remember Sci-Fi. We had been pretty far along in the pitch process with Sci-Fi, which was mm. like Space Channel. Um, and then they decided, uh, similar to your experience where somebody new came in and they said, no, nah, we're not doing any animation, Yeah, which is kind of a blanket decision. Yeah. The animation one, the one that really bugged me is, um, I've, I think I might've mentioned it. This is the worst part about recording like an hour of podcast a week is that you forget that I've, oh yeah, somebody would be like, you said this like two episodes ago <laughs> and I'll be like, ah, but uh, one of the things that happened with our show as well is I was like, I was like, this is it. The door is open. I'm ready to pitch all of my ideas um, because I thought like, oh, we kind of proved ourselves a bit by doing like a genuinely like set in Dublin Irish show because I had pitched shows before and they'd just been like, oh, they're not very Irish. Yeah. Which really bugged me because I, I was like I said, I'm, I am Irish. So it's like, you know, when you say it's not Irish, it's like, that's not the anyway, that really bugs me. But um, what ended up happening was I brought it to attention of somebody. I was like, oh, I've got these other animated ideas. And they went, oh, no, they've already done an animation. So they're not going to do another one. Do yeah, you know? yeah. And I was just like, it was just we so frustrating. Box. Yeah, because like every single, you know, sitcom on Irish TV, you know, live action wise, is just a bunch of Irish lads hanging out. So it'd yeah. be kind of. I don't know how, you know, animation gets lumped into just, you know, it's that Brad Bird thing of animation is not a genre. So, you know, but yeah, I don't know if it's the same thing in, in Canada necessarily. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to get anything greenlit. Um, yeah. And it's especially tough to get, to get adult animation greenlit. Like our, our main kids, <laughs> uh, like our Cartoon Network equivalent is called Teletoon and they will take pitches all year round. But mm. they only look at the pitches internally once a year. And okay. it's in like November. So if yeah. you happen to pitch in December or January, you're waiting in pretty much a full year before you get your letter that says yes or no. Right. And more often than not, it's a no because they have <clears throat> the, the kind of ownership structure over here is, is pretty you know, intertwined. So we have mm. broadcasters that own their own studios that own their own distribution companies and and so they already have these pre-existing deals with larger studios so you know at any given year they might have five things that they can green light mm. five out of five will go to these existing envelopes um which doesn't really affect me like i'm, I'm very much of the mind of like just make it throw it up on youtube see if there's legs and then go from there mm. um and and the more i the the more I think about like shows I'd like to do in the future as well, the cheaper and shittier they end up looking in my mind. <laughs> so, because yeah, yeah. Super Science Runs is so, it's like, I don't mind saying so well animated that I'm, mm. I'm almost anxious to, to work on something that's not. Yeah, I know uh, what you mean. And we've done, some, <laughs> we've done some tests where we, we have like a line of funny dialogue and then we do 
two or three versions of the of the shot one that's fluid and animated well and then one that is just like kind of pose to pose crap mm. and the one that gets the chuckles is the pose to pose crap <laughs> and and you know as much as we want to be artists and we want to be you know uh, yeah. do something that can we can show off out of context and it's going to get wows but um i started thinking more and more about like i want to write something funny and i want it to be hilarious and i don't want three guaranteed laughs in an episode i want 15 guaranteed laughs in mm. an episode so i think that's where my focus is going to shift as things uh, as things progress yeah um yeah i guess um trying uh, but yeah sorry one last thing about it is that the 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 thing about online stuff as well that's so freeing is the length that you can do it. Like you're saying about, oh, I did a 17-minute thing and then you have like a four-minute thing and stuff like that. Is that also kind of liberating to you and something that you like? Or do you think you'd feel limited if you went to like a network structure of like 20 minutes or whatever? I don't or... know. I think there's I think there's a rhythm to those shows mm. um, that, you know, you, you get into it. I, I think it would just be a matter of getting accustomed to it. For yeah. us, it's like the reason episode one of Super Science Friends is 13 minutes long when you take away the credits mm. is that it was, you know, it was closer to 20, but like I said, we lopped off an entire yeah. end, uh, to put on this very short punch gag and then cut to credits real quick. Mm. Um, and so otherwise that would have been longer. We've had a couple episodes. Episode four was 24 minutes. Mm. Episode two was 20 minutes. So it, it, there's always been some range. And, and for a long time, I, I've thought, let the episode be as long as it wants to be. Right. Put it in the boards, put in scratch audio, see how long it feels like it wants to be, get that rhythm so it's all punching. But now as as things progress, I'm I'm kind of intrigued by the challenge of getting it into the right, yeah. Um There's a story where I, I think uh, when Larry David was doing Curb Your Enthusiasm, he was he was all over the map as far as lengths. Yeah. And uh, especially going long. And I think HBO snapped him back and they said, it needs to be under 30 minutes from here on out. Mm. And so every single episode from that point forward was 29 minutes and 59 <laughs> seconds, exactly yeah. on the nose. Uh, and it's obviously like a big Larry David fuck you to HBO. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I kind of like that. <laughs> I, I think I'd like to be able to, like, if it has to be 22 minutes, all right, let's, let's yeah. do that. That's how I felt about, um, we were talking there about, like, um, you mentioned about like 1975 George Lucas versus 1999 George Lucas. I was thinking about that with Arrested Development where I was like, there's a real monkey's paw thing of like, oh, I, I want there to be two more series. And then they come and they're just like, no, I want it to not be here anymore. This is the worst. Here's they my, really, oh. I have a theory on that and it ties into my theory on Disenchanted. Yeah. So my theory is that, uh, um, you know, Mitch Hurwitz, who did Arrested Development, and Matt Groening, who did The Simpsons and Futurama and stuff. Unquestionably, very funny guys. Mm. Um, and I would, I, people would probably throw out the word genius for both of them. Yeah. Which I'm not, I'm not disputing. Yeah. But my take on that is that Fox gives excellent notes. Yeah. And that's the only thing, I, the only conclusion I can come to is that, is that, Matt Groening has been working within the Fox ecosystem for 30 plus years mm. and has gotten their very excellent notes and has used them and yeah. has guided the show to be excellent. And same thing with Mitch Hurwitz, where those first three seasons of Arrested Development, there was a constant yeah. battle. 
between yeah. Fox, who was really not liking the show, and Mitch, who really had a vision for it. And I think that push and pull and that getting it over mm-hmm. the line and back over, I think that's where the magic of the show came in. You would see the same thing in, in shows like um, Ren and Stimpy, for example. Yeah. Like in the John Kay first two seasons where John Kay was the showrunner on Ren and Stimpy, you know, he was always pushing hard in one direction and, and Nickelodeon was always pushing hard in the other direction. And it created this kind of magic yeah. middle ground. Um, I think... I think The Simpsons had it, I think Ren and Stimpy had it, and I think Arrested Development had it. Mm. So what happens then is Mitch Hurwitz goes to Netflix. Netflix opens the pocketbook and says, you're a genius. Do your thing, man. They don't give the same notes that Fox gives, and it ends up being a fucking mess. Same thing with Disenchanted, where it ends up being a mess because you've let this guy off the leash, but he's, he's so used to being on the leash that, you know, how is he, how is he meant to, to perform that way? Yeah. I think the other thing as well is that there's a lot of emphasis placed on the writer constantly. It's like every time for the rest of development, they were showing pictures of the, you know, oh, here's my storyboard. I'm making it. I wouldn't say storyboard for rest of development. That's like drawing the lines and the arcs yeah. and all this type of stuff. And then you watch it and it was an absolute like mess of arcs just interconnecting <laughs> and weaving around each other. And then the same with like Disenchanted, like um, one of the things I, I was looking up because I started rewatching The Simpsons. One of the web episodes I went back to was um, the one where the Germans take the plant yeah. um, and the, the land of chocolate sequence, you know, <laughs> you know, we're from the land of chocolate. And then apparently they were saying we had to fight incredibly hard to get that extended sequence of Homer in the land of chocolate. That's the animation department pushing back, whereas like I don't want to be mean to disenchantment necessarily but i didn't feel like there was as much in there was a lot of emphasis almost placed on the writers like we got josh we J. weinstein we got whoever back you know but there wasn't kind of as much of a push for the kind of artist who might have made that thing the way yeah. it was and what the you... same with yeah same with the rest of developments where they have like yeah the actors will film on different days it'll be fine it's like no the chemistry is the most the, the part that really yeah. sold that show as well do you know if you, if you couldn't afford to get them in the same room together then just don't do it yeah exactly or, or wait until you 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 can do it um yeah i felt the same way i've heard differing stories on disenchantment that have gone against my theory which is like yeah. netflix gave him all the money in the world i've heard that he was actually on quite a tight budget and that he paid mm. for a lot of it himself um and i think if if that is true then you see it like when i watch episode one i listen particularly to the music or the yeah. lack of music, because there's it's it's so noticeably vacant, mm. um, and it sounds like the music they put in was stock music that they sourced yeah. and, and stuff. And it's just I'm so used to The Simpsons or Futurama where it's a full orchestra that they yeah. have on call and they're able to score the actual movements of the characters and stuff. Um, so maybe I was a little bit spoiled, and and you know, I will also say like if I'm wrong in those theories, then. Uh, you know, maybe Fox is a nightmare and maybe they were the geniuses that they are touted as. But like when I look at those two shows in particular, I look at great Fox shows mm. and then bad Netflix shows. Yeah. I have to think like the, the common missing ingredient here is Fox. Yeah. Well, the thing about Fox as well is like it's funny because it's so they were just ruthless in cutting them down so they could fit in as much advertisement as possible. So with the rest of development, every single episode, I think, comes to about 22 minutes. Whereas on Netflix, it was like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 25. And it was like this differing thing. 
Whereas, in, in, so you don't have the same pace either. I mean, but he, that's good. Like, yeah. like, like it's, I, I don't want a 30 minute arrest development because cutting yeah, exactly. it down to 22 means that you have to sacrifice everything but the best stuff. Yeah. We have that's a, we exactly have a, what happened yeah. in our studio where it's like the God of the God of pacing demands many sacrifices. Yeah. yeah. And so whenever we have to chop something down, we just go, well, the God of pacing has demanded another sacrifice. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, one other one was of a creator who you know, I was thinking of the uh, Bruce Tim animated Batman and yeah. then he goes on and does stuff like, I believe, the killing joke and things like this. And you're just like, you know, there's the the part where it's like, oh, the network interfered. And they said, you, the Joker can't murder anybody. So he's got the laughing gas that makes them all kind of grimace, you know. Yeah. And they might be dead. They might not. We don't know. But um, but then when you see like the Batman movies that they made in the DC universe or whatever it is, then it's like, you know, I, I'm people disagree with me on this but i'm not a big fan of joe john dimaggio as the joker in this one it was under the red hood um i believe and he like um they played the he played a joker who just like is brutally murdering people and like stabbing them and blood's like shooting out and it's like just incredibly self-indulgent and uh you know the limitations you can place on yourself can also strengthen something that you're making as well you know no yeah. question I met, I was at Comic-Con one year right after uh, Dark Knight had come out mm. and I happened to meet Mark Hamill on the street, yeah. uh, a friend of mine who, who was, a, I believe it was the guy, Angus Oblong, who made the, if you remember that cartoon, The Oblongs? I do, yeah. So he was the creator of The Oblongs. I knew him and he introduced me to Mark Hamill and I didn't want to go up to Mark Hamill and go like, oh my God, Luke Skywalker. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I'd play it really cool and I'd say like, hey man, I really loved you as the Joker. <laughs> And he went off on this rant that was <laughs> all about exactly what you're talking about, where it's like he was so restricted as the Joker and mm. he wanted to, he was, because everyone's obviously in love with Heath Ledger's Joker yeah. performance from Dark Knight. And he's like, it was my idea to play the Joker as a, as a junkie way before Heath Ledger did it <laughs> and this and that. But he, he dropped a few little tidbits, which was like, the Joker could never have a handgun. Mm. He could have a Tommy gun or he could have a bazooka. And the mm. reason was that, especially in America, um, it's unlikely that a kid could get his hands on a Tommy gun yeah. or a bazooka, but he could get his hands on a handgun. Mm. And so that was one of the restrictions that was placed on them was you have to you have to use these kind of ridiculous weapons because you can't use realistic weapons. Yeah. And so uh, he and I don't know if he was excited about that or if he was bitter about that or whatever. But he was it was it was part of this kind of stream of consciousness uh, mm. thing that he was obviously obviously been, been thinking about <laughs> mulling over. Yeah. And I remember like looking around just like, why am I being yelled at in the middle of this? Yeah. yeah. Animal right now. It is so funny because like, it's, you know, there's certain people. I met Ken Foray, who did. Um, he played. He was in Dawn of the Dead. He played uh, Peter, I believe his name was. Could be wrong yeah. about that. But anyway, um, he was also the dad in Keenan and Kel. And I just remember that he was answering all these questions about Dawn of the Dead and Rob Zombie and stuff. And then I was asking about Keenan and Kel. Just went off on one for like, you know, like, <laughs> just like Keenan and Kel. Oh, that was getting paws in my face and just like really, you know. Um, but he was he was just amazing. But it's like one of the it is like that thing where it's like people ask you your opinion enough and then you just get used to the stream of consciousness. <laughs> I can imagine approaching somebody and it's like you just 
the right set of words set off this person into this tangent that they've just been running around in their head and you'll never be able to understand why they said it or what they're saying but it's like that is a more unique experience than most people will get you know yeah um, there there was a, a documentary recently about the Beatles and uh mm. and I remember one of the interviews said like if you want to know what happened with the Beatles don't ask Paul McCartney okay because he's been he's he's been asked the same questions over and over and over again for so many mm. years that the stories and the responses have gotten so polished and so tight yeah. and so kind of witty and funny and, and et cetera, that they really don't actually aren't recognizable to the actual events that happened back then. So the mm. idea was that they were, they, they were talking to these people that had never been asked these questions before. Yeah. And so this guy who you're talking about, probably nobody so yeah, about yeah that thing so he's just like finally blah, yeah. and then he spews it all at you all at, and i would like to think it's the same thing with mark hamill where it's like yeah. everyone talks to him about star wars and finally he can talk about the joker yeah yeah and, he's, uh, he's very passionate about that he was funny because he like retired voicing the joker there like i'd say 10 years ago and then he continued to appear and stuff as the Joker. And I was like, why did he make this bizarre public statement? He said the only reason he would come out of retirement to play the Joker was if they did the killing joke. And then he played him in the killing joke. And it was, I just absolutely despised the killing joke. And even his performance as the Joker wasn't his best, which is, is also a shame. Um, but, um, but yeah, which is, no. It, which, yeah. which one's the one where he's, he's uh, Robin from the future, but he's got like a... <sighs> Is that That's so good. Um, that was a Batman Beyond one. I think that was called Return of the Joker. Yeah, okay. That's the one I'm thinking of because I was like, I don't know. That one's pretty good. So I don't no, think I've seen was, The Killing Joke yet. That was his finest performance as the Joker. Easily. Oh, um, wait. The Killing Joke's the one where Batgirl and Batman have sex, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. I remember reading that in the in the, the cartoon brew or something like that. Well, the comic book was written by Alan Moore and he says it's the worst thing he's ever written because he's like... <laughs> He, he said he feels incredibly guilty for making Batman something he wasn't because he was like, Batman was like a fun character. And then this comic made him like dark and people were just doing like, he was kind of doing it as in like, hey, this is a direction you could take that character. And then it became like the definitive direction to take that character almost. Yeah. Uh, well, with along with Frank Miller. But, you know, um, I, I had a conversation with someone about Superman, too, where he his whole thing is like nobody knows what to do with Superman. So yeah. they make him kind of dark and brooding yeah. in the movies. But really, like, he shouldn't be. He should be the best of all of us. Yeah. But people really like that dark Superman so much that they just keep going back to it. I don't get that. I'd, I don't even... I'm not even sure people do. like. People are always loving, like, the Chris... It's like what a studio exec will think. It's like, you know, that the... Like, let's say Deadpool does really well. And it's like, oh, so that's what you want. And they just make every... These kind of, you know... It's just like some maybe the data is showing them that like people just want more growing up fair. It's not necessarily saying that they want like really crude stuff all the time necessarily, do you know? Yeah. Um so yeah, I think that's the same thing with this. It's like Dark Knight, it's like, oh great, that was a great movie. Can we go back to that? And it's like they do it to every single character. So you have to have Wonder Woman be that, Aquaman be that, you know. Um I think they have kind of come around now because of the Marvel formula seems to be turning enough heads you know where it's like they they clearly went back to the drawing board with like aquaman and um what's what are they doing now with there's something that they did oh yeah now with the the joker movie though 
I don't know what that's going to do. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm intrigued. I've heard it's, I mean, it's it's a movie that definitely half the people say they hate it and half the people mm. say they love it. So those are the movies I like to see. Yeah. I think it's the colorfulness that, um, I mean, that's my whole take. I did like, it is, it is, a, it's fine. It's kind of like, um, I heard that Martin Scorsese was going to direct it and then he just backed away. And then they were like, hey, who can we get that will just do a Martin Scorsese film? So they just got this guy who's like, yeah, I'll do Taxi Driver. No problem. You know, <laughs> King of Comedy, I'll work that all in there. So it's set in like the 70s and it's it's kind of like meant to look really gritty. But, you know, if you've seen King of Comedy, you probably don't, you know, it, it's not like you don't need to see it because the Joker's fun character to watch and Joaquin's great, obviously. But like you... Um, you're not going to it for the story if you've seen King of Comedy, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, it's. Uh, sorry. Yeah, there were there were. I, all I know is like in the states there were there were warnings on the if you go yeah. to buy tickets to the Joker where it said like this is not a kids movie. Yeah, Batman yeah. does not show up in this movie. Yeah. Don't bring your kids here. Yeah. No, I mean, just they, they, I guess Alan Moore is to blame. We should, you know. Making the Joker into this uh, demonic clown character, you know. <laughs> so, Alan Moore is so interesting. I was like, I like I've seen guy. interviews with yeah. him where he's he's like, I've never seen any adaptation of anything I've ever yeah. done. Like he is a Watchman, and I, I kind of wish he would. I would love to sit in a room with him and w- have him watch V for Vendetta. Same, yeah. Because I feel like of all the ones, that one was. It yeah. wasn't even like it was that, you know, true to the source material. It was just like yeah. so well interpreted. Yeah. Um, and just see if, if maybe he walks out of it going like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, he's no. crazy, man. He's got some good videos online. Hearing him talk about anything is just, uh, he had, oh, God, no, I could talk about that man all day. I have to do an episode on him, basically. Um, but yeah, sorry, no, I'm just looking at the time now and probably uh, just try and wrap it up. Um, we have this section at the end called Whistle While You Work. I should have mentioned it earlier. Um, the idea of it is, um, what type of things, if any, do you listen to, uh, when you're working? And even if you don't listen to stuff while you work, what do you listen to when you're not working podcasts or music wise? Uh, music, I'm all over the map. I'm not like a a music guy, but let me open up my, my Apple music thing. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm actually quite, uh, like Morgan makes fun of me because I, I've, have such a terrible taste in music in that you know like somebody who can who says they're a foodie and then goes and eats mcdonald's like that would be the the equivalent for me it's like i'll just listen to anything uh but i do have a particular songs that i listen to when i'm working late when i Mm. have to pull an all-nighter or something like that um one of them one of them that i've uh, I've listened to a lot is uh they built this city on rock and roll And there's just something about the rhythm of that music where it like it's entertaining enough. I think it's because it has this little like like spoken part off the top yeah. with the like radio DJ and then it yeah. goes into it. And there's something about the fact that it was in the Muppet movie. And I don't know. Yeah, it, yeah. it just makes this nice alchemy that I can just put that on repeat for, yeah. you know, 12 hours straight. And and uh, and it somehow powers me through mm. through the night. Um yeah, so the, I would say they built the city on rock and roll is my all-nighter fave music. Um, and what would you? Sorry, I'm just going to write that in. Um, what would be your favorite? Uh, if you do, you listen to podcasts or no, not at all. 
Really? I don't listen to podcasts, but I'm going to listen to that conspiracy theory one you mentioned. Oh, yeah. Look that up. Um, these conspiracy guys, I believe it's called. I haven't listened to it. So if it's, you know, turns out to be horrible and racist, that's, you know, <laughs> um, I don't think it'd be racist if it was very popular, but you never know, you know. Um, yeah, cool. I'll send that to you in a link now after this. Um, yeah, I'll say what I'm, what I'm listening to at the moment, um, I guess. Um, I listened to, I say this, Kevin Abstract was like in some hip hop that I just found on Spotify recommended thing, but I've been listening to Empty on repeat for whatever reason. Sometimes I just get a song and I just can't stop listening to it. And then like I tried listening to the rest of the album and none of it takes. <laughs> it's just this one song and it's like, you do feel really bad. Like it's like this person has so much more music and anyway. And um, as for podcasts, don't think I have any because I'm since I'm doing this all the time, I tend to just recommend everything. I'm I'm all out of podcasts. Um, but yeah, that was great. And so where can people find you if you want to be found? Uh, that's a good question. I can be found on on Instagram. Uh, that's that's usually where I spend my social time. So uh, mm. Brett Jubinville, all one word. Or if they want to follow some of my uh, very derivative artwork. Uh, you can find it on Brad Jubinville Art uh, or Super Science Friends is is yeah. on Instagram as well. That's a good place. And uh, is it too early to say when the next episode will be out or when the next teaser will be out? The next teaser, uh, I'll I'll be launching the next teaser in probably December first or what's the Friday before? Hold on, that's uh, that's, that's this week. That's this Friday, Friday, Friday the twenty yeah. ninth. I will launch it on Friday the twenty ninth. Okay, and it will, so it will have good. the date for the for when the full yeah. episode will be out. Oh, cool! I think this one will be out after the Friday, Friday the twenty ninth. But that means just go and look at it now. I guess uh, you can find us at www.wearehackinc.com and at wearehackinc on most social media except for the SoundCloud, which is at hackinc. We also have a Patreon. Given that this is uh, gone on a very long, <laughs> maybe some of this will be on the Patreon. Um, the Star Wars discussion, prime, you know, target for chopping. Um, anyway, thanks so much for coming on, Brett. Yeah, thanks for having Appreciate me. This is so much fun. Sweaty palms as I walk down the empty road. I got a mom, but we ain't spoke. And I don't know, I had a heart that don't speak to me anymore. And life get hard, but these last days be me more. I'm just trying to get my bands up. While you running through the banners. I don't understand this You should find your way I hate my yearbook photo I hate my passport I hate my last name I hate everything it stands for I should probably fucking transfer Blue and brown dance ports How to pull a transport I never went to prom Now I'm stuck on the dance floor Just holding your hand Just holding your hand Emotions that surround me. I think about you all the time. I've waited for you all my life. I need you right here by my side. Blowing off my mom, I wanna go home. I'd rather be alone, I don't wanna go home. It's getting really late, so I gotta go home. Mom's blowing off my phone, so I gotta go home.